I think that's a very important point, um, especially if a business is concerned around where this is going. Because if you do, if you are really motivated to do a, a great job to get to the bottom of the problem, and I think most businesses will come from that that point of view. They don't want it to occur again. But on the other hand, if they have this real concern, then this is a way to manage the process. Welcome to Safety Help with Tony Collins. Join him to learn how to improve workplace safety to be legally compliant, win more contracts, and increase profits. Hi, and welcome back, listeners. Tony Collins here, and today I'm joined by a well-known New Zealand health and safety lawyer, Grant Nicholson. How are you going, Grant? Very well. How are you? Good, thanks. Look, Grant is a partner with Kensington Swan, and I've heard Grant give a really great presentation a couple of years ago around the whole process of an investigation of a workplace incident, which could ultimately end up in a court situation and what you as a business should be doing around managing this whole process. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We'll focus on a workplace accident scenario. Are you happy with that topic, Grant? Perfect, Tony. Ready to go. Okay. Well, let's say in a, in a business out there, an, an accident's just occurred. Uh, they've gone through their emergency response plan, and the people that are injured are now getting their medical treatment, and the site is secured, so no more people are going to be injured. And people's, in their mind, they will start now turning to their legal requirements. So what should a business be doing from this point on? Well, the first thing they need to do is assess whether actually serious harm has occurred, and there's a statutory definition in the Health and Safety and Employment Act, um, but basically you can almost follow your gut instincts. If, if it's anything serious where somebody's had something chopped off or whether they've been taken off to hospital and they're likely to stay in hospital for a period or they become unconscious, those will be common um, indicators that you have had serious harm. If people aren't sure about whether they've had serious harm or not, they can go online and look at, I think it's legislation.govt.nz um, that has the Health and Safety and Employment Act on it and they can look up the definition which um, sits in Schedule 1 to the Act and get a sense for themselves or they can contact a lawyer to ask whether in fact they have any um, obligations under the Act in relation to the accident. That might seem like it's self-evident, but I did uh, a number of years ago now have a client who had a worker working on a construction site with a nail gun uh, where he fired the nail gun and the nail rebounded out of a very strong surface and embedded itself in the guy's lung and they rang me to say, well, that doesn't really sound like serious harm to them and I had to say, oh. well, yes, ter- terribly sorry, but actually it is. <laughs> uh, so don't always trust your gut on that. The reason that whether it's serious harm or not is important is because if it is serious harm, there's an obligation to report to the what's currently known as the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment, so that's formerly the Department of Labour and in a few months' time about to be known as WorkSafe New Zealand, uh, as the primary regulator, and you need to make an oral notification as soon as possible. Now, in large um, centres like, say, Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch, you'll normally get a, a window of a few hours before that might um, become an issue with actually getting reporting done through to the uh, ministry's 0800 call centre. But in smaller centres, particularly in provincial towns, are notorious for this. What will often happen is if you've called the ambulance to come out to site to, um, to look after somebody, then the emergency services will take it upon themselves to call either the police and or the local inspector. And what you do is then firstly lose control over the process and who's saying what to whom, but also you run the risk of an inspector um, 
taking umbrage at the fact that you haven't notified as properly as you might, and also you run the risk of an inspector actually turning up on site before you're ready for them to be there. Mm-hmm. Once you've done that, and, and working on the basis that the scene is secure, um, on a practical level, there's two things that people need to do. The first of those is really just, just to think about sort of employee assistance to not just the person who's been injured, but actually to all their workmates as well and anyone else who might have actually witnessed the accident or otherwise be affected by it. You'd be surprised how often that actually is a, quite a material concern, particularly when you've got sort of you know, more significant injuries. And I'm thinking about not just fatalities, but actually cases you know, where people might have to, have seen one of their workmates you know, potentially lose a limb or have you know, uh, fingers or you know, a hand degloved for example, and so you see some fairly messy, um, for want of a better term, sure. accident scenes where, where the people left behind are going to need support because it, you know, the person who is the victim is also a friend, you know, a workmate, uh, even if it's a contract or a subcontract situation, it's going to be somebody who they've sat down with at Smoko and had a cup of tea or a coffee with, perhaps had a cigarette. So it's going to be people that they know. And so the first thing to be, one of the first things is to be thinking about, well, can anybody else actually safely go back to work or are they going to be distracted? Do we need to be thinking about what we can do for all of them? You know, as well as having sort of an on-site communication planner and what you're going to be telling people because you know, obviously on larger sites you're going to have uh, a large number of people who aren't necessarily going to know that there's been a serious accident happen until the uh, the jungle drums start beating around the site and all of a sudden you've got a whole lot of people uh, who are hearing part of the story but not, not the full story and who will have a lot of questions about what's going on. More importantly, you've also got to then be thinking about actually what you're going to be telling more senior management. So for, for larger businesses, particularly, but even any really, any business where you've got more than one site and where you don't have the, the ultimate bosses on site working um, where the accidents occurred, they're going to want to know, be notified as to what's going on, be thinking about whether there's needing um, any sort of PR or media support. So particularly incidents that are high profile, uh, even when it might be small contracting um, businesses, Often they'll be involved with working um, with larger organisations and, again, provincial centres tending to be more that this is an issue for them rather than in the big centres, but where there's not as much news going on. Uh, reporters from the local press are very good at having contacts with the police and ambulance and fire services and actually sniff out that there might be a story and it's something that they can you know, squash to their editor to put into the local paper for the next day. And so companies need to be thinking about, well, what is it they, they're going to do in terms of actually offering some sort of a public comment? And, and generally speaking, I tell them, well, look, sort of say some pathetic things about how awful it is and how you're looking after the victim and you know, doing everything to protect and sort of you know, support the, uh, the other employees, but it's otherwise inappropriate to comment until the investigations internal and external have been completed. There's a lot of information there. And it, it sounds to me that the key thing, we talked about reporting, reporting requirements, the oral, the written requirement, then moved into potentially having a communication plan already thought through. Who are you going to talk to, whether you're a large or medium business in a large city or are you rural? So the sense I'm getting from the, the first opening statements there is preparation is key even before an accident. Look, absolutely right. And so you talked at the outset about the companies sort of starting to implement their emergency response plan. And really the best example I can give you of that is um, Pike River Coal with the Pike River mine explosion from 2010 where they had a very extensive documented plan where they had a range of, of roles that were identified. Uh, they had done some training drills so that the people who were likely to have roles in the case of an emergency actually knew what they were supposed to be doing. Uh, there were only two very significant problems with the, with the plans that they had. Uh, one 
was that they didn't actually give consideration in their emergency planning to what happened if you had somebody in a senior position who actually might either be caught up in the emergency or in the case of Pike River where you had the National Health and Safety Manager for the for Pike River Coal, who had two sons trapped in the mine. Well, obviously, that immediately took them out of play from being able to participate in the uh, implementation of the emergency plan because he had uh, more pressing personal concerns to attend to. Uh, but you also had a situation where, uh, when the Pike River Royal Commission came to look at the problem, they asked every man and their dog, from the police to the fire service to mines rescue to people from the company, uh, Pike River Coal and others, whether there was an emergency plan being implemented, and they all gave different answers. And so people within Pike River Coal said, yes, we, we had an emergency plan and we were implementing it, and we had people who you know, had the right checklists and the, they were wearing the right vests to say what was going on. Sure. But when you asked the police and the emergency services the same question, they all said, no, we had no idea that Pike River was doing anything. Right. And so there wasn't any degree of coordination, there wasn't any advanced planning. And so for any business that might sort of as, uh, operate in a, a high-hazard kind of environment, there's actually a real need to be thinking about, well, do we need to be doing emergency drills, not just with our own people, but actually involving the emergency services from our community and just thinking about how it is that they might have to come out. Mm. The story that comes to mind for me is, oddly enough, my father-in-law, who was working at the time for a company up in Fongaray where they were refurbishing um, marine vessels and they had somebody trapped in a confined space and when they had um, the ambulance had to turn up to, to try to get somebody out of the confined space, they hadn't yet gone through a drill in practice and the emergency services personnel weren't actually able to enter the confined space because it was too small for them. They were larger figured uh, ambulance officers. Right. And so the whole process ground to a halt. So it's great to have an emergency plan mm. so you know what your response is going to be. Mm. But you have to think about how practicable it's going to be and what's really going to happen um, when something does go wrong. Because when it does go wrong, it needs to be seamless and ready to go. Hey, uh, that's great. So thank you for hammer, hammering home that point about being prepared. And I'll put links to the legislation that you referred to before, the HSE Act, just for the listeners so that they, they can easily get there. But so if we, if we move a step down now, we've responded appropriately for the emergency and the site is secure. And now, now we're kind of, we've done our reporting. What is likely to be the next step from, from the oral and written report being completed? What normally happens then? Sure. Well, I guess the starting point is that, so the oral report is done on the day and, and the, the written notification to the ministry is then due within seven days. But that's a one-page form that you can download uh, for free, again, from the dol.govt.nz website, and so you might be able to get a link for that as well. Often the inspectors will be pushing for that to be, um, to be made available to them within 24 to 48 hours. They've got no statutory right to do that, but given it is a one-page form and it's very bland in what it says, uh, there's often not a lot of downside in doing that. Beyond that, the probably prime consideration is then to actually start to investigate the incident internally. So what the legislation requires is that when you've had a serious harm accident, a business is obliged to investigate it and to determine whether a significant hazard caused or contributed to the, to the incident. In practice, what tends to happen is that the inspectors will want businesses to undertake a full investigation to identify what was the cause of the accident and to give them conclusions that often read like a checklist of practical steps not taken and to identify for the inspector every possible thing that could have been done that wasn't done. That isn't the legislative requirement and what it does is obviously expose 
businesses who prepare that sort of report to the potential for prosecution or other enforcement action. So, so what we say to people is sort of stop and draw, be- draw breath, make sure that right from day one you start to identify who's the right people to be involved in an investigation team and then actually to work out what investigation you need to do. And that will, generally speaking, require speaking to everybody who was on site and who was a witness to the relevant events and to be speaking to them sooner rather than later. It's particularly important, though, to balance up talking to people on the day when their recollection is freshest with also talking to them at a time when they're under significant um, emotional stress and strain and their recollections might be somewhat clouded by you know the emotions of the day. And so giving people a little bit of time and space just to actually gather their thoughts before they then actually commit anything um, to writing, particularly in terms of giving a statement to the investigation team. And to bear in mind when doing that kind of interview process about what it is that you're going to write down. Um, I, one of my the common bugbears I find is that people will write down very indiscreet um, and unhelpful statements, which aren't necessarily bounded in fact, but are more matters of opinion or hearsay because employee number one talks to employee number two, who spoke to employee number three, and suddenly they all take as gospel what employee number four is, is reported to them as having said or seen when they haven't. In, spoken to the other employee and in fact that may not be the case. So it's really important to just to sort of separate out the speculation and hearsay from what people actually saw and heard and said and did because those are the key things that are going to need to be identified as part of the investigation before you then actually get down into right well how was it the systems and processes that were in place in the business allowed um, the incident to occur. Okay, great summary of the investigative, the, the investigative process there from the business's point of view. And um, there are probably varying degrees of capability within a business and, you know, to what degree they can gather teams together and what specialist training they have. Um, but let's say they did the best job they could and did everything that you spoke about. I'm interested in the tension there between the regulator and the report that is produced for the business. What rights does the regulator have to to request that report? Given what you you mentioned that um, it could be you you could be hanging yourself. That's a really good question. In simple terms, the regulators have the right to call for any documents within the workplace that either relate to the workplace or to the employees who work there. Uh, The Ministry's position on that is that it's a very broad power. It's fair to say that it hasn't been particularly well tested by the courts as to what the exact limits of it are, but it it doesn't really matter for uh, particularly smaller businesses where they don't have a lot of experience dealing with regulators because the regulator will say, I'm entitled to your report and I want you to give it to me and we'll put a lot of pressure on saying, make sure you hand it over. Uh, Generally speaking, what I get clients to do is to almost apply a sniff test to it at the start. And so you'll generally speaking have a bit of an idea right from day one as to whether this is something um, which is not likely to excite much uh, interest. So, for example, somebody who is walking across uh, a yard uh, outside a warehouse and trips over you know, a step and falls down and breaks their wrist, which nobody's really going to give an awful lot of consideration to, versus, say, you know, the Tamahiri Coastal that exploded you know, and, mm. and killed a fireman and burned a number of other firefighters, where clearly right from day one people knew that there was going to be a lot more interest in it. Mm-hmm. The only way that companies can protect themselves against having to disclose their investigation report to the ministry and to the inspector is if they have done it under the 
on the basis that it was being prepared um, so that the company's lawyers can give them advice on whether they have any liability. And that requires actually engaging lawyers in the early stage. So I put in a plug for uh, all my lawyer colleagues up and down the country around that. <laughs> but it really is a, just a protective measure. It isn't necessary in many cases, but the problem you have is if you don't at least think about it at the outset, you can't do it retrospectively. So if you don't engage your lawyer at the outset and say, hey, I'm going to want some advice from this at the finish, you can't magically wave a wand at the finish and then say, well, actually, all the things we've already prepared, we now want to put privilege over, whereas it does work in reverse. So at the outset, you can say to your lawyer, look, I think I need some advice. Lawyer can say to you, right, in that case, please do a report for me so that I can then um, consider it and then provide the advice as to whether you've got a legal liability issue. And if you go through a process internally and actually decide, well, we don't really want to spend the money on getting a lawyer to, to do anything once we've, we've sorted out and understand for ourselves what happened, then that's fine. The privilege just falls away. Right. I think that's a very important point, especially if a business is concerned around where this is going, because if you do, if you are really motivated to do a, a great job to get to the bottom of the problem, and I think most businesses will come from that, that point of view. They don't want it to occur again. But on the other hand, if they have this real concern, then this is a way to manage the process. Look, I think so. And from my perspective, at least, things have changed over the last, say, year to 18 months. And so while in the past it was quite important to have a really strong relationship with your local inspectors and to be seen to being a company uh, of any size, really, who actually looks to be cooperative and to be seen as being somebody who's responsible and you know, doing the right thing, did actually assist um, companies to avoid any enforcement action being taken against them, even when they might have technically breached their, their legal duties. Post Pike River uh, and all the criticism that the Department of Labor, as it was then, uh, took about the light-handed regulatory approach, we're seeing a far more aggressive stance being taken by inspectors in terms of saying we're going to do more enforcement actions, but also actually looking to really test the boundaries of their powers and, and make uh, demands on businesses that are really right on the cusp of whether they have the, le the legal ability to do it. I'm not saying that to be critical of them, because clearly you know, their, their role is to ensure the safety of, of workers and, and others involved in workplaces. So they are actually really just looking to do their job, but it creates more of a tension than it did in the past. And, and it would be naive, I think, now for businesses to expect that sort of trying to maintain that cooperative sheen with the inspector is going to be a panacea that means that you aren't then going to face enforcement action. Uh, some of the inspectors are, frankly, a little bit sneaky in terms of trying to develop a rapport with the owner of small and medium businesses and be saying, look, you know, I just want to make sure that you're doing the right thing and then getting people to actually say things that are incriminating of themselves and then saying, aha, now actually, well, you know, my boss is making me, but I'm going to have to go away and, and prosecute you and you are now going to get a fine and potentially have to pay, you know, tens of thousands of dollars or more right. uh, in, in penalties. So that people do need to be thinking about what is prudent and best for themselves and to be, in my view at least, taking a very um, measured and often narrow view about what it is they are actually going to disclose. Mm. Now, having said all of that, it is still really important to at least give the appearance of being cooperative with the inspectors. Um, <laughs> there is an offence for obstructing an inspector and you don't want to get into a situation where that is either threatened or in fact becomes a, a an actuality so that to the extent that the inspector is, asked, is making reasonable requests and the requests aren't actually going to involve you in, uh, in saying anything that's going to incriminate, 
then there's no reason not to cooperate because the starting point is that both you know, the employer and also uh, the inspector are really just looking to actually work out what happened to make sure it doesn't happen again. So to that point, at least, we're all on the same side. Okay, so can we just look into that? What, what do we mean by reasonable? Now, does that mean giving them access to any records you, you've got or the people to, for you know for interviews or where, where does where what are the bounds of reasonable? It really depends on the circumstances. So if you take those two aspects, people and documents, in terms of documents, while the law isn't particularly um, clear on the issue, by and large, uh, we all work on the basis that the inspector can ask for just about any document that you have within the business that is not legally privileged or which isn't going to incriminate you uh, and create some sort of legal liability risk. So that the doc- if the inspector asks for a document which the company already has, um, then subject to actually reviewing it first and deciding whether it's going to say something unhelpful and then try to um, see whether there is a, a justified basis for not disclosing it, then it does need to be disclosed. And that can be right down to the level of saying, um, an inspector saying, for example, that he wants a copy of, he or she, a copy of a, an employment contract for an employee. In my experience, the, the inspectors are reasonably good at accepting that sometimes there'll be some commercial limitations. So, for example, if an employee doesn't want to have their salary disclosed, um, then it may well be that you would give a redacted version of the contract that has some bits um, blacked out. Sure. Because there's a balancing act between privacy and, and you know, the rights of the inspector. When it comes to actually talking to people, it becomes uh, difficult to gain. There's no automatic right for the inspector to be able to talk to all the people who were on the site at the time an accident happened. And I had seen companies trying to say, no, we're not going to give you access to people. It's fair to say that it drives the inspectors crazy. And I know of at least one occasion where a company that refused to do that uh, was uh, then subject to an enforcement action on the basis that they were were obstructing. I don't think that was well-founded, but that that is what happened. But employees need to be told that they don't actually need to talk to the inspector if they don't want to. And, and the inspectors are, in my view, somewhat poor at pointing that out to people. And so that they put a fair degree of pressure on saying, well, I want to talk to you. I want to understand what's going on, you know, and trying to force people to, to give an interview when they can just say, no, I don't want to talk to you. And so it's, it's important for employers to be thinking about actually reminding their employees uh, that they don't have to talk if they don't want to. But equally, it's important for them not to be saying, I'm telling you not to talk because I think that's just a terrible look and, and also, frankly, socially irresponsible for, for an employer to be doing that and trying to actually keep the employees away. But it might well be the case that what you want to do is say, well, look, yes, we're very happy for you to talk to our employees, but they've been through a traumatic experience and, and we're, as, as part of our role as a responsible employer, um, we're supporting them at the moment. So you can come and interview them here at our, at our workplace and we're going to remind them that they have the opportunity to have anybody that they want present in the interview with them. And that might, might mean a friend, a family member, might mean a union rep, or it might actually mean the company's lawyer sits in to actually protect the individual and ensure that they don't say anything that is incriminating of themselves as anything they did or didn't do which might have contributed to the accident. Mm-hmm. Now, again, that, that's an issue which causes some angst with the inspectors because their view is that there's a conflict of interest between acting for an employer, say, and also one of its employees. Um, we generally speak and tell the inspector that, well, that's just the way it is, that any conflict issue is really between the employer and the employee, and as long as actually they're all just telling the truth, then there shouldn't really be any conflict between them. Um, but there have been cases where I've been involved in where a conflict has arisen, and we've had to stop interactions and say, look, actually, at this point, uh, you now have a conflict. Um, a conflict has arisen, we can't continue to act for somebody. I did a case last year, which was effectively a he said, she said, with two guys working on a construction site where they each blamed the other. 
uh, for an, an accident that had occurred that led somebody to fall sort of five or six metres uh, through an unguarded penetration. And once it got to a point where they each wanted to point the finger at the other, then obviously there was a conflict and I wasn't able to continue to assist. Mm -hmm. uh, but until that point, you can actually, um, as an employer, say to your people, look, we're very happy to have the company's lawyer help you and, and you know, just remind you of your rights and then it's really over to you what you have to say beyond that. The advantage of that, of course, is that it gives the uh, the employer an ability to have eyes and ears inside the room and to know what it is that's being told to the inspector so they've got a better sense as to what the inspector's uh, approach to the whole thing might be in terms of the lines of questioning, but also what the inspector is being told. Is there anything else in this sort of uh, scenario around workplace accidents that uh, we haven't talked about yet in terms of legislation and changes that have been proposed or anything else I haven't asked you? Probably the big thing that you haven't, we haven't talked about yet is what rights does the inspector have actually to do, um, like take samples or do destructive testing. And so it may okay. well be the case that if you've got a workplace accident has occurred involving a piece of machinery that, for example, they're going to want to take photographs or measurements of it. They might want to do some sort of a scene reconstruction. Generally speaking, they're, right, they're able to come in and have access to the equipment um, that was involved in any accident and to have a look and to work out for themselves what was going on. But the employer is not obliged to be doing a, a recreation of the accident for them or to actually you know, try to speculate and, and, and recreate what might or might not have gone on. Um, likewise, to the extent that any destructive testing is required, so if you've got a piece of uh, equipment that needs to be um, to be broken up, for example, in order to assess why it is that it failed, normally there would be an opportunity for the owner of that equipment to liaise with the inspector and to make sure that both sides are represented when any testing is being done so that there's an understanding of what testing process is being followed and therefore the accuracy or otherwise of the tests undertaken can actually be properly um, monitored and, and, you know, and judged as whether they're giving a, a, a true and fair outcome. In terms of what the future holds in this score, my expectation is that the law is going to largely remain the same once the Health Safety and Employment Act is repealed and replaced later this year, um, but it's a little bit of a moving feast at the stage. We haven't seen a lot of uh, recommendations for change from the Independent Task Force on workplace health and safety in this regard, mm -hmm. uh, and the, the Australian law is broadly speaking consistent with what we have now, but until the end of July when the government is due to put a bill before Parliament through anybody's guess. Grant, I think we've covered a lot there and, and uh, maybe if it works out for you later on in the year, we'll get you back to actually talk about the changes that have occurred in the HS and the Act. I'd be happy to, Tony, not a problem. Okay, so generally what we've talked about is preparedness to me that came through well and truly that you need to actually be prepared and to be practising your uh, emergency response and communication plans. Reporting is important both orally as quickly as possible and uh, seven days for the written side. The the investigative side of the process, I mean, to me it's pretty clear you should be considering getting legal advice. I'm talking to a lawyer, of course you're going to say that, but <laughs> I think it's pretty, pretty clear that uh, it's some really good reasons to do so. Yeah, look, and with no help, no hint of self-interest, that, that's definitely the case. That doesn't mean, though, that you actually need to have your lawyer running the investigation process or doing it all for you. That would obviously um, sometimes be appropriate, but it's also expensive, and lawyers don't always have the right skill set to be doing it. You, it may well be best to do it within the business or indeed to engage a specialist health and safety practitioner from outside who can come in and actually have a look and help you work through that uh, where you get some pricing certainty as to what's going to be going on with it. 
probably the fundamental thing from my perspective, at least, when you when you do an investigation report, is you're thinking about firstly making sure that it doesn't just come across as blaming the victim. That's a cop trap that people fall into, uh, because for inspectors, generally speaking, they don't want to hear it's the victim's fault. We have perfect systems, and they've just managed to circumvent them, uh, because the fact that you can circumvent a safety system rather indicates that <laughs> there's a failure in the first place. Exactly. Okay. Hey, Grant, obviously it's a very complicated and complex area. If people need to get hold of you for more advice, how do they go about doing that? Sure. Well, look, I'm always happy to speak to people on the phone. And if there's a quick question that somebody wants to ask me and I can give a quick answer, then I'll happily do it just as part of my contribution to the health and safety community. Probably the best ways to get hold of me are either on my mobile, which is always on 24-7 given the nature of health and safety. Uh, that number is 021-378-524. Uh, alternatively, you can email me here in my Auckland office, which is grant.nicholson, C-H-O-L-S-O-N, at Kensington Swan, which is K-E-N-S-I-N-G-T-O-N-S-W-A-N.com. And uh, yeah, I'd be happy to speak to any of the listeners about any issues that they've got. Hey, thanks, Grant, for coming on and hope to talk to you later on in the year. No problem, Tony. Take care. Cheers. This has been another episode on Workplace Safety by Tony Collins. For more tips, visit safetyhub.co.nz and join the free newsletter.